Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Can you really tell if your meal or drink has been disturbed by a bug? Well, that's exactly what researchers who won the Ig Nobel Prize for Biology have been diving into, whether or not you could detect the presence of a fly in your glass of wine. Plus, we dive into the way our brains perceive quality, the impact of the placebo effect in marketing, and what's actually going on in our brain when we see an expensive label compared to a cheap one. It's time for the Nobel Prizes in 2018, and we've already covered the science of roller coasters and how they can help you clear a kidney stone. This week, we're going to turn our attention to the Biology Prize. And the Biology Prize this year, in 2018, focused on a fundamental question. Now, we all like a nice drink. And depending on your beverage of choice, that could be everything from water to something a bit more complex. But it's something dipped or dropped into that drink, spoil it in a perceptible manner. Now, of course, if you dropped a whole bunch of lemon into some milk, you'd pick up on the taste pretty quickly. But let's say a bug has fallen into your glass. Will it spoil your drink? Can you actually even tell? Well, the Ig Nobel Prize in 2018 in biology was awarded to an international team of researchers including Paul Beecher, Sebastian Le Breton, Arika Wallen, Eric Hendenstorm, Felipe Borroi Echeverri, and Marie Bengston, Volker Jürger, and Peter Witzka. And what they found and demonstrated is that wine experts can actually not only identify if their glass has been spoiled by the presence of a fly, but they can even identify its gender just from the smell and the taste, all from a single glass of wine. And that's why they were awarded the Ig Nobel Prize in Biology in 2018. But now we're going to dive into that result and explore a little bit about what exactly is going on here and how if it makes sense. Now this incredible result has a lot to do with complex chemicals because complex chemicals enable things like plants and animals, even microorganisms, to exchange information between them. And not only that, the same chemical compound can cause a variety of different responses depending on the thing it is interacting with. Let's take, for example, linalool, which is found in foliage of flowers and fruit and and basically in many plants. But let's say you have aphids, which are small creatures that chew on plants, and they're eating the plant themselves. What does a plant do to defend itself? Well, it can release or increase the production of linalool. This basically deters the aphids and basically calls for pollinators to come and collect them and eat the aphids. So it's sending two signals, one to tell the aphids to go away, but others to attract pollinators, which helps for obviously the reproduction of the plant, but also has the potential added advantage of taking out the herbivore that's chomping down on it. It's known for a while that Airborne linalool actually can help enhance mate finding and basically cause a pheromone type response in some plant feeding species. And that means that some insects themselves start producing linalool basically as a way to attract mates. In mammals like us, basically linalool uh, introduces a psychopharmacological effect in different parts of our brain. And we can pick it up, perception basically, via odorant receptors. And we can pick it up as a sweet floral note that when you smell a bunch of flowers or in wine, well, basically you're smelling some of this linalool or the result of it. That's because in wine, let's say, grape and yeast are both sources of linalool. 
Now, what does this all have to do with the humble fruit fly? Well, it's quite interesting. Drosivilla melangasta is basically a fruit fly that loves to chomp on citrus fruit. And if there's yeast in that citrus fruit, that's where the Drosophila will actually lay its eggs. And what's funny is that both citrus peel and brewer's yeast both produce linalool, which means that for the Drosophila, it actually likes to lay its eggs, so to speak, inside, well, potentially, yeast that is brewing your alcohol. The funny part is all of this happens and releases pheromones, which is what the DML and gaster flies actually use. And sometimes they can actually even use some of these pheromones, like Z411AL, to detect and determine gender of the fruit fly. And they use it to basically identify, is that a potential mate or not? And this, this all ties back to linalool because the same pheromone that detects and encodes for linalool in these fruit flies actually also does it for this pheromone, Z411AL. Now that's all a nice and good. That's the, the fruit flies actually rely on an exchange of pheromones between the, what they're trying to lay their eggs in, but also to identify mates. And that's very, very interesting. But if I'm a brewer making a drink, making a wine, making something involving yeast, then the result is that I often end up with these vinegar debelangaster fruit flies living or laying eggs or getting into my wine. And that raises a bit of a problem. Because, well, maybe your drink will get contaminated. And you might say, well, what does it matter? Who cares if a fruit fly gets into it? But the results of this particular study shows that not only does it matter if that fruit fly gets into your drink, it also means that humans can detect and understand if a fruit fly ever was in that collection of liquid. And also, we can use it to identify from the reverse process what gender that fruit fly is. And all of this works by the sniffing, so to speak, of the pheromone Z411AL. How these scientists actually tested this was quite interesting. They got an eight-member panel, and they were all presented with a variety of glasses. One control and two treatments, obviously presented in a random order. And then the panel was asked to identify intensity ranging from one, weak or silent, just nine, strong and loud, and to determine if they could smell an odour quality difference between the glasses. And what they were trying to identify here is, well, if you, let's say, put a single male and female fruit fly for five minutes inside the wine glass and then release them before the test, could the human actually identify if a fruit fly had been in that glass? And then they tried to replicate the same thing using a synthetic version of the same pheromone, Z411AL. They also tried putting in some wine and dropping a fruit fly into it to, see, to let it permeate and then take out the fruit fly before they test it. And what was incredibly interesting is that the panel was pretty much able to identify the presence of the fruit fly. It actually produces a really distinctive scent. And they found the female flies to be actually a lot stronger and clearly detectable through the nose than the single lonely male flies. And this happened in both immersion tests along with the actual 
synthetic equivalent. By contrast, if the fruit fly was male, then it released a particular pheromone, and that meant that the pit panel could not detect it. They couldn't detect its presence in an empty glass. They couldn't detect the presence, without the, obviously, without the pheromone, or they couldn't detect it in the case of immersion. That is pretty interesting, because it could show you that just a single fruit fly can be enough for a panel of people to actually identify the presence that once a fruit fly came into contact with this food or drink, or even just the vessel itself. Now, we're not entirely sure why humans have kept this ability to detect and understand Z411AL. There's no real obvious usage for it. We've seen it that it could be found in citrus peels. We know it's found in these fruit flies and sometimes in rabbits. But that doesn't seem to do anything to us and we have no reason to be able to detect this pheromone. But we can, which is very, very interesting. If you think about it for another species like a bird, like a crested alcalet, a seabird. Now, they all produce a characteristic citrus-like scent. And they get that from Z410AL, which is similar to 11AL. But what they use that 10AL for is actually as a parasite repellent and to signal to other mates that they're attractive. But we don't know what the use humans might have for the similar chemical composition. So why? Why were these researchers investigating the presence of fruit flies? More importantly, the pheromones of fruit flies. Well, if you're trying to produce internationally competitive wine or drink or beverages or even just food in general, the presence of the fruit fly there could throw you off the scent, quite literally, producing a scent that changes quite discernibly, especially to show that the human nose and eyes and ears and mouth can actually detect a variety of things that you yourself may not even be aware of, which is what is exactly happening in this pheromone case. So for shedding light on just how many flies it takes to spoil a barrel of wine, these researchers have won the ignoble prize in biology. And they've also shed some light on the complicated chemistry of pheromone signaling and just shows just how much we still don't understand about the way humans have evolved and what uses we may have had in the past for these signals and what we have in the future for them. We're going to turn now from the tales of finding a fly in your glass and whether or not you can detect it to going to another very, very interesting aspect of neuroscience. Now, we know that if you put a label on something, that could tend to change your opinion. And we're not entirely sure why that's the case. For example, if you're expecting to drink a glass full of water, and instead you take a big guzzle of a glass full of vinegar, you're going to have a very, very uncomfortable and awkward response. But if you go in there knowing that you're drinking vinegar, you may have an entirely different reaction. That's obviously an extreme case. But if you wanted to apply it to something else that you might drink, let's say wine, and then change it from expecting uh, whether it's vinegar or not to expecting that it's cheap or expensive, there's been a lot of research to actually identify if whether or not the label that you give that wine makes a lot of difference. And wine is a good example because it's a big industry with a complicated rating system and a huge, huge diversity in price, all the way from a dollar or less for a bottle 
up to the several thousands of dollars. But realistically, they're the same type of chemical reaction. Yeast that is fermented from grapes, creating a drink that has been kept over time. So what is going on that we can have such different expectations of the drink? And it's a good stand-in for other cases where we might have be influenced by the presence of a label. It might change our entire expectations of the experience. And that everything has to say something is good or something is bad, even though objectively they're the same thing. And this has been looked at very interestingly over a long period of time. A great example of this was done by Baba Shiva, who was a professor of marketing, and was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences all the way back in 2008. But the premise of the study was whether or not marketing actions can change the way your brain processes information and experiences pleasantness. And the way Baba Shiva actually studied this was particularly interesting. They took an fMRI, and together with fellow authors Hilke Plasman, a Stanford postdoctoral researcher, and Antonio Rangel, a Stanford economist, along with psychologist John O'Doherty, they took fMRI scans to gauge brain activities. And the study asked participants to first swallow liquids through a pump attached to the mouth, mostly because, you know, you can't normally drink a glass of anything inside an fMRI machine. And then they actually watched them and watched their brains respond to try and see if there was a neurological correlation to how they experienced pleasantness, which they call in their lingo EP. Now, normally, you make the assumption that, well, if someone's going to experience something and have it be good, it's going to, especially for like a drink, it's going to depend on a few things, like the intrinsic property of the thing they're drinking, plus maybe the individual's flirt. But when you're in marketing, you try and nudge the brain in certain ways. And one of those is the price. And price often stands in as a proxy for quality. And then this can impact the brain. Now, Shiv's research has, for example, shown that people who paid a higher price for an energy drink, such as Red Bull, were able to solve more brain teasers than the people who'd be paid a discounted price for exactly the same product. This is, is nothing to do with a chemical response or effect here. That's purely a marketing effect, changing people's behavior. And we know and understand that marketing can change the way that people respond to stuff, as does any type of motivation. But we don't really understand how the neural mechanisms inside our brain make that work. So what they did is take 11 male Caltech graduate students who said that they had drink and enjoyed occasionally red wine. And they were told and given five different Cabernet Sauvignons, all identified by price. In fact, there was only actually three wines. Two of them were given twice. And in those cases of those duplicates, they were given different price tags. One a $5 and the other a $45 price tag. The real bottle price in this case was 5 The second wine was marked as 90 uh, that was actually worth $90, was given a fictitious $10 price tag. And then they had a couple others in there as controls at the, at the uh, correct price of 30 Now, what was very, very interesting is that the participants all said that they could taste five different wines, even though there were only three. And the three wines that they identified as tasting better were all the more expensive ones. So based on the MRI results, the researchers actually found that the perceived price was leading to a part of the brain, the MOFC part of the brain, to actually get activated more. 
because their taste expectation had hit in there to tell them to expect pleasantness. Now, this is a little bit interesting because when our brain is, can be nudged in one way or the other by a simple thing as a label, it just goes to show that how can we really trust a lot of the things that you can evaluate as objectively good or bad? Now, a more rigorous study looking at a wider number of participants was later done. Robin Goldstein, a key researcher, wrote a book called The Wine Trials, published in 2008. And along with that, there was a very extensive paper called Do More Expensive Wines Taste Better? And based on a series of results from a lot of blind tastings from across the country, the team of researchers, including Robin Goldstein, Johan Allenberg, Anna Draper, John Emerson, Alexis Herkovich, and Jacob Katz, collected results from expert wine tastings and non-expert wine testings from 6,000 blind taste tests. They then tried to compare them between price and overall rating. And what they found in this large-scale study is incredibly interesting. Basically, the summary of these blind wine tastings up and down the country is that if you were a regular person with no experience in wine tasting, and you enjoyed an expensive wine, you'd actually enjoy it slightly less than a non-expensive wine. But what happened when you had expert wine tasters is that they had a negative relationship between price and enjoyment. If it was a cheap wine, they wouldn't enjoy it, but if it was expensive, they would. And they tried to get rid of all possible outliers and really only focused on quality of results that could be analysed. And they had enough samples to really try and make it statistically significant. It's not 10 people testing, it's 6,000. And basically, the take-home of the study, if you're a non-expert wine drinker, chances are that you're going to enjoy what you're drinking regardless of its price or its rating from experts. But if you're a wine expert, well, you're not going to enjoy very much. In fact, your expertise is going to cause you to disregard and not enjoy wines that the large populace might enjoy just because of your expertise and your expectation that the more expensive one will be better and a kind of self-reaffirming bias. Now, studies like this show immensely interesting applications for everyday life, for everything from cars to movies to clothes. But unfortunately, we're not able to test them as easily because there aren't defined grading systems and there aren't defined point rating trials that are undertaken as there are for wine. It shows that the perception and the expected pleasantness that you have before you taste or experience something can have a huge and actual real neuro impact on your brain, which will then lead you to experience the product, whatever it is, slightly differently. So our brains are doing some pretty amazing stuff behind the scenes that you may not even be aware of. And this kind of nudge theory is very, very interesting area of behavioral economics and neuroscience. In fact, a more recent study done at the University of Bonn's Center for Economics and Neuroscience, CEN, basically tried to replicate a similar result. Now, this research group, including Professor of Marketing Hugh Plasmid again, has previously shown that chocolate and wine, for example, the price expectation can lead to the brain perceiving better taste. 
but they took 30 participants, 15 men and 15 women, with an average age around 30 years, and then put them lying down in an MRI scanner. So, the participants' brains were recorded in real time as they tasted the product. Now, what they were trying to test at here was the limits of this marketing placebo effect. For example, if you gave someone a low-quality wine for, and told them it cost 100 euros, you wouldn't really see much of a marketing effect on the, the rating that the participants gave it. So they tried instead to use average to good quality red wine with a retail price around 12 euros. In the MRI scanner, the price of this wine was shown randomly between 3 and 18 euros. And to make it as realistic as possible, the participants were actually given 45 euros as initial credit, and they got to choose how they allocated and spent it. Now, as expected, the marketing effect was in full force because the people who had the high-tech expensive wines said that, yep, they liked them more than the cheaper ones, even though, for example, they were the same. Now, when they looked at the MRI results, they showed that parts of the medial prefrontal cortex and the ventral striatum were activated when more when the prices were higher, while the medial prefrontal cortex particularly appears to be involved in understanding and integrating the price comparison and thus the expectation inside your brain of what to expect out of the wine. The ventral striatum forms part of the brain's reward and motivation system. So when the reward and motivation system is activated, the more significantly with the high prices, and therefore it apparently increases in the other part of the brain what you expect and experience pleasure out of it. So ultimately, this part of your brain's reward and motivation system is getting tricked because another part of your brain sees the price and says, good, expect high quality, and that ticks off the reward and motivation part of your brain. Now, the interesting part that Professor Weber is looking at with this team is, can you use this in other areas to motivate people or train one's own physical perceptions or taste to better motivate you? At the end of the day, marketers are still going to find a way to try and trick your brain one way or the other. But it's an interesting example of how our brain can be nudged and which part of our brains are activating when this is happening. Some good research out of the University of Bonn. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From detecting a fly in your glass of wine, all the way to detecting whether or not you have been drinking a good or bad or expensive or cheap wine, our brains can process chemical signals in interesting ways. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.